Hey there, welcome to MTV's The Stakes. I'm Holly Anderson, MTV's Director of Politics and News, and what we have for you today is not our usual show. We've been working pretty much nonstop since Sunday morning to bring you news out of Orlando. We haven't thought or talked about much else, and we're obviously not in a place where we want to do our normal romping frolic of a show. So we won't. What you'll hear from us instead in this episode is what we think we do best, just people telling their stories, stories we've pulled together over the last week. Our first one, appropriately, comes out of Orlando. Um, I'm driving right now, but I can pull over for a few minutes. Just let me just get off. Looked like I was on my way uh, to a funeral, actually, to encounter the Westboro Baptist Church is here, so that's great. And uh, the, as a counter-protest is happening. Hi, Alex. Okay, hold on. I can uh, can barely hear you. Okay, I can speak louder. Um, I just said I'm going to do a quick intro, and then we'll get right into the questions, if that's okay with you. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay. This is Julie Zeilinger, the deputy editor of MTV Founders. I'm joined by Alex Sierra, a 26-year-old gay transgender man born and raised in Orlando who has generously agreed to share his experience and thoughts about this horrific event with listeners of The Stakes. So, Alex, first of all, thank you for taking the time to talk today, and my condolences to you, Orlando, and the LGBT community. Thank you. We've heard a lot about the shooting that took place at Pulse itself, but can you help us understand the context of it? Can you describe the LGBTQ community in Orlando and especially how Pulse and clubs like Pulse fit into it? Yeah, I mean, the, the LGBT community here is larger than I think most people realize. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're definitely tight-knit. Um, I think everybody knows somebody who was affected by this tragedy. Um, and we're proud. I mean, our pride, since I've been going to our, our local pride here that usually takes place in October, um, in 2008, it's grown and grown and grown by thousands each year. Um, and, you know, Pulse is one of three major gay clubs here that act as a place where we can gather, you know, a place of, of community and acceptance. We don't have to worry about you know, what anybody says. Um, and for me personally, um, that's where my fiance and I had our first kiss. Uh, it's where we became a couple. We used to go there all the time. Yeah, and, and given that context, how have you personally, as well as the community at large, responded since Sunday? You, you mentioned to us that there have been some protesters. Um, how have you been dealing with that? I, I'm lucky that I, I wasn't hurt Mm-hmm. The people close to me weren't hurt, but many friends of friends, including um, Louis Fialma, who worked at Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey. I worked there mm-hmm. for two years. You know, we have the same friends. We went to that same club. And if this had happened, you know, five years ago, it would have been me and my friends there. Um, and we, I think we all deeply recognize that and are deeply hurt, hurting right now. Um, because we all know it could have been us, and it's an attack on our community. And I think even through all that pain, there's so much uh, strength and and pride that's coming out in our community, not just in the gay community, but in the entire city. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you've seen the lines 
wraparound blood banks and people don't time and dropping everything to come out and help with counseling, with food, with water, in any way they can. And now, yeah, the Westboro Baptist Church has decided it's a good idea to, to pick at the funeral, mm-hmm. the funerals that are beginning today and are happening throughout the weekend. And there are already thousands on their way there to counter-protest to show them that that's not what Orlando is about and we won't tolerate that kind of hate being brought here. Yeah, I'm sure that's incredibly difficult to see. And it seems like a lot of people are trying to make sense of this violence in any way that they know how. And it seems in doing so, a lot of people are focusing on the shooter as well as our nation's political environment in which anti-trans bathroom bills are passed and LGBTQ people are still legally discriminated against in myriad ways. How are you making sense of this um, in that context? And as a member of this community, what do you think those outside of it should take away from this? Uh, I have seen a lot of the, the media focus on the shooter and his whether or not he has affiliations with radical Islam or not. Um, really, I could care less about that. Clearly, whatever his leanings were, this was a hate crime directed at the LGBT and Latino communities. That kind of hate doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. It's fostered by our culture here, by the laws that get passed. Um, even politicians just in our community here uh, have come out and now expressed their condolences and, you know, how sorry they are for the community, but where were they? Where were they when they when we needed them to support us in, in passing marriage laws and passing anti-discrimination laws? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and with this trans bathroom bill thing, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, the, the, the victims the, and some survivors were huddled in, in the bathrooms in that nightclub mm-hmm. being shot at and killed. But we're the ones who are, are predators in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I don't know these politicians, if they don't get it at this point, how we can make them realize that the policies they pass foster a kind of hate that results in, in tragedies like this. Yeah. And in your conversations with other people in the community, do you think that's sort of an overall sentiment? Most people I know do agree with that. We, we, I mean, this is our reality. We live in a world that makes it not okay to be LGBT. I think most of us here um, do feel that this was a target attack on our community based on um, homophobia, transphobia, and not really on um, on the basis of religion. And all of us stand with the Muslim community, and we know that this does not represent their beliefs as well. So what can listeners of the stakes do now, and how can others outside of your community help at this time? I think the best thing that um, people can do is, you know, continue to send the messages of support. That means so much to hear from all over the world that people are are thinking about us, are, you know, grieving with us, and also to specifically LGBT people. If it's safe to do so, be out. Be involved in your community. Let people know that your friends may be gay, your friends may be trans, you have family members, members of your community, and when they know one of us, then most of the time that fear and that hate fades away because they realize 
we're normal people and we just want you know to live a happy life like anyone else We all know what happened. We know the horror unleashed by one man driven by his hatred of queer people. Many of us feel the impact of the massacre in Orlando, especially those who are queer and Latino. The Muslim community feels it too, as opportunistic bigots find another excuse to try and turn us against them. So what do we say? Well, no one should gloss over the fact that this was an attack on LGBTQ people. No one should forget that most of the victims are Latino. No one should offer up their thoughts and prayers if they harbor any form of prejudice. Because those words are only wind and dust in our ears. If the anguish of the people truly moves them, all who have bent their words and actions against these communities must do more than give crocodile tear condolences. They have to help us dismantle the hatred they have fostered. And no one needs to speak on behalf of guns, because when guns speak, their word is final. So what do we say? I didn't know what to say to the people in my own queer community at a Monday night vigil in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Some of them had just learned that they knew someone who had been murdered in Orlando. I said something to open the vigil, but I can't recall the words. I do remember trying to commit to memory every face in the crowd. So many names I did not know as I stood in the rain reading names that I wish I knew for any other reason. Honestly, I felt numb. I've had several conversations with counselors who specialize in treating grief and trauma, and two bits of wisdom from them have stood out. The first is that news of traumatic events like the attack at Pulse has a way of ripping the skin off all of us. We're left raw and vulnerable, but in our vulnerability, many are compelled to help others. This leads to the second point, that when we help others to heal, we heal ourselves as well. And I see so many people who are reaching out to help others, offering up whatever they have to strangers for whom they only want to do some good. That's true of so many of us. It's likely true of you. Now, as I process what happened and what it's doing to people in various communities, there's only one thing I want to say. I've been saying it more since I heard the news early Sunday morning. I've said it to my boyfriend with more urgency. I've said it to my parents like it's a prayer. I've said it to every friend and nearly every stranger. The only thing I want to say is that I love you for being here, for being you, because you are what will wash away the hatred that poisons souls and takes lives. You can conquer the hatred that has caused so much pain in Orlando and every community where violence and the fear that arises in its wake have cut scars across all of us. You can keep healing each other. You can keep opening your hearts to each other. You can stand against the ignorance that drives the motives behind this kind of violence. Each and every one of us has the power to overcome hatred. That's why we can and will win. 
because you will get us there with a love that is unconditional, unapologetic, fearless, and revolutionary. You just heard from our resident poet, MTV politics writer and vocal artist, Marcus Ellsworth, and before that, a conversation between Deputy Founders Editor Julie Zeilinger and Alex Sierra. Up next, Doreen St. Felix, who covers music and politics here for us at MTV, speaks to DJ Oscar Enye, co-founder of Poppy Juice, a monthly dance party for queer and trans people of color in New York City. Uh, so thanks for coming in today, Oscar. Yeah, no problem, Doreen. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Before we talk about the events of this week, I just wanted to you know, introduce our listeners to you and to mm-hmm. your work. Uh, so specifically with Papi Juice, mm-hmm. I know that next week is the third year mm-hmm. anniversary, yeah. which is so exciting. It's a really big deal for us, yeah. Oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. What essentially sparked the idea to start this party series almost three years ago mm-hmm. at this point? Right, so um, Papi Juice, um, we're a party with a mission, which mm-hmm. you don't get a lot. Our mission is to celebrate queer and trans people of color and the folks that love them and slash us. We started because uh, Adam R., who is the other resident DJ and co-founder, we were together at some point discussing the frustrations that we had with like traditional gay male spaces where uh, people of color, queer and trans people of color, were not seen. We were invisible. Our cultures were never reflected in any sort of like either visual, like uh, music-wise or body-wise, right? Like when we went to like gay bars, there weren't any people of color and like the few of us that were there, it was hard for us to interact with each other when a lot of like how like the gay bar in itself is built is to cater to white men. Mm. In a, you know, like a traditional gay male bar, there are certain like desirability politics that are set in place. You have, you know, you have to have a nice body. You have to be white. In Brooklyn, it's you're bearded. Other <laughs> places, it's you're not. Um, <laughs> but you have, to, yeah, you have to have a nice body. You have to be white. You have to have style. Like you have to know the latest music. You have to be like drinking a certain type of drink. You know. So there's like those certain desirability politics set in place. And so when people of color are mm-hmm. together in that kind of space, it's like hard for us to interact around them, right? And to meet each other around them. So Adam and I were really frustrated with that. And we had initially met on Tumblr and then through mm-hmm. a friend. And so um, we talked and we were like, let's just do our own thing. So Adam is um, Belizean and uh, Black American and um um, Honduran, but I grew up in Washington D.C., and so with that, like, came a very wide range of like different like musical tastes. And then we also would make art, and the art we were very, very, very intentional on featuring men of color mm-hmm. and people of color as beautiful and sexual beings, but not fetishizing as men of color and other people of color are usually represented in Mm -hmm. like any sort of media I feel. Yeah so it seems what was so 
an important component of building this party space was also building visual mm -hmm. and also audio mm -hmm. musical accompaniment. So mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about the way that your tastes differ from, you know, mainstream DJs? I assume that you're not just playing like EDM, the kind of stuff that you yeah. <laughs> listen to when you go to a white bar. Yeah, totally. So for me, um, with all my like Latinx friends, we would find ourselves at a bar and never hear a Latin song or never hear a song in Spanish and mm -hmm. but everybody loves a song in Spanish you know what I mean like you put Suavemente on and everybody's <laughs> bopping you oh know? no you did <laughs> you know what I mean though like I'm Haitian okay so, so I'm West Indian so I know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> every generation every gender yeah there's certain just songs like, that just galvanize people yeah yeah I mean and that like I mean, that song for, like, Spanish-speaking people and for Latinos, like, we've heard that song maybe a little bit too much, so maybe <laughs> for us that's not exactly the song that we would ask for or want to hear. But also Latinos, there's a lot of us here, and, like, a lot of us want to feel represented, you know? Now as a DJ, I played all of, like, my music. So I grew up listening to a lot of hip-hop, R&B, rap. And so then I would play a lot of that as well. And... Then I also love bass and I also love club music. So mm -hmm. I would play, I, I still play a lot of like club music and a lot of it was from peers. I just want to right now pivot to questions of identity. Um, so I noticed both in the literature around Papi Juice and also just now when we were talking, you mentioned the term Lat Latinx. And I think that some of our listeners may not know okay. what that means and also how it came about. So can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to using that term as opposed to Latino? Um, so Latinx to me is the idea of being more intentional in inclusion. So like Latino in Spanish, the O is like a masculine like ending for a word. And so I try to make now the conscious effort of saying the word Latinx I think it's a very, very important word, especially as, you know, we as queer people, queer and trans people are dismantling, like, the gender binary in a way. You know, there's more and more people that are not identifying with either genders, mm -hmm. right? And so I think Latinx is a good way to include a lot of people that felt excluded by the gender binary. Yeah. So in the literature for the party when the flyers go out online um, in addition to seeing the Latinx language we also see that this is an intentional space and I know that before when we were getting ready to talk to you today mm -hmm. you mentioned that there is that safe spaces do not necessarily equal intentional spaces mm -hmm. so can you tell me a little bit about the difference between those two and also why you have chosen to um, make Papi Juice an intentional space mm -hmm. um so, uh, this is a little bit of a sensitive topic for me right now. Um, I actually never believed in safe spaces because I, uh, I've experienced like, like, you know, potential threat firsthand in the space that I was trying to create, mm -hmm. um, where a couple of white men have come up to me really aggressively because I wasn't submitting to their commands. And luckily, like, nothing happened to me physically. But ever since then, I 
we as a collective, so at that point, Pavijus, we did say we were a safe and intentional space, but ever since then, we actually stopped saying mm -hmm. that because at the end of the day, we cannot control who comes in through those doors. Our intention is to create the space for queer and trans people of color. And as sad as it makes me to say this right now, we cannot guarantee safety. And I've known that for a while. And now it's like even more so, like more so real. Mm -hmm. So, of course, one of the reasons why we're talking today is because of the events of this past Sunday in Orlando, Florida, a massacre um, at the Pulse nightclub on Latin night took the lives of 49 people. Um, so I know that you're Latinx and I've noticed both within my immediate community of friends who are of color and then also just more generally, there's a sense that obviously public grief, public mourning has to take place. And in a way, dancing and celebration and mourning have always been very close within this community. Mm -hmm. We're always having to celebrate and mourn people at the same time because that's what it means to be marginalized in this way, especially in America. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the narrative that's starting to take place? You know, a lot of people don't remember that it was Latin night at this club. Um, mm -hmm. And when we look at the names, almost all of these people have Latinx names. And sometimes these names aren't even produced with the Enya or like they aren't actually written in the way that they're supposed to be in Spanish or whatever mm -hmm. other language. How does it make you feel personally? For me, like you mentioned, like the spelling and um, pronunciation uh, when people are reading and talking about the names of the victims of Saturday night, I think that um, I, for example, I'm super intentional about my Enya and I mm -hmm. include it in everywhere that I go. And it is there for a reason. It is there because I need it to be there. And whenever I play other parties, any other party, I will, if um, a lot of the times the promoters are like, oh, but I don't know how to include an Enya in Photoshop. And I'm like, what? Well, I don't know what to tell you. Let me Google that for you, honey. Because like, <laughs> I like I don't have, I'm, I'm sorry, like I'm not gonna accept a flyer without my name spelled correctly because that's not how you spell my name. Yeah, so I think um, the way, you know, a lot of people want to see themselves reflected or feel a connection to this event because of the fact that it was in a gay club. But it's, again, really important to recognize that it was on Latinx night and that most of the people, if not all of the people that died, were actually people of color, were actually Latinx people. It's also really important to honor their heritage, right? Like to honor where they came from. Mm -hmm. Some of them were visiting the country some of them it was here they were here for the first time some of them still have families back in countries in central caribbean and south america and i also think that in a way it's like this thing where we keep coming back to like this idea of like lgbt people lgbtq people as like two cis gay white males I get the New York Times like like daily briefings emails. I don't know if um, any anyone gets those really, but the when I got that my daily briefing on Monday morning, the main image of the event were 
two gay, white, cis males hugging and crying in front of the White House. I felt really, really upset when I saw mm -hmm. that image. This is the New York Times, you know? I was just thinking, how do you have this picture? And also, like, the photo in the background of the White House, like, as if, like, the government is also suffering this, right? Like, this was an attack on, like, LGBTQ people of color. And you are showing the opposite of, like, what that means. Like, you're showing, like, everyone that is against mm -hmm. that community as the victims of this event. Yeah, and optics are something that are so important to you. You put so much care into the visuals that you put forth. Um, I invite anybody to look up Papi Juice posters online. You'll see exactly what Oscar is talking about. Um, before you go, I have one like fun question for you. Go ahead. Where did you come up with Poppy Juice <laughs> as a name? Yeah. Everybody loves to know. <laughs> so um, Poppy Juice um, came out of like a brainstorming session between Adam and I where the name of the party, we wanted something to be fun, to be kind of silly, to be like weird, but also like a little bit sexy, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for the, I wanted to for it to be clear that it was for like, Latinx people and that like also like it felt welcoming to other people that it, it wasn't just a, a name in Spanish right like mm -hmm. you know there's the juice and then there's the papi and so like <laughs> I wanted to make sure that like everybody like felt welcome but that there was this understanding that this was a party by someone maybe that was Latinx so people could expect like the kind of sound of the party in a way you know and like the kind of vibes that the party was trying to give And also in Spanish, you call everyone papi. Mm -hmm. Like the kid, the grandpa, like the gay uncle, like everybody will get called papi. And then there's also like this movement of like, I feel like women identifying folks, identifying with that word papi. Mm. I just love that word. And like, I, like now I feel it. I see it, like how it can be more inclusive. It's still not perfect. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think in general people it may not be perfect all the time but they are trying to understand caribbean west indian latin american culture and mm. that's a very easy way it's a very easy entry point it's very clear what papi means yeah. you know everybody's saying daddy online so yeah. <laughs> get with the papi yeah, you know right it's like zaddy daddy <laughs> papi like <laughs> papi's best well again thank you so much oscar no, thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure I'm Mukta Mohan. The attack on Pulse in Orlando is devastating to the Latinx LGBTQ community because it happened in a space where its members felt safe. The idea of gay bars being a place of freedom for their patrons isn't a new one, and sadly, neither are attacks on those spaces. On January 1, 1967, plainclothes Los Angeles police officers raided the Black Cat Tavern near Hollywood using excessive force and beating many patrons of the bar mercilessly in the process. They arrested over a dozen people for acts of public lewdness. The chaos spilled out of the Black Cat and into the bars and streets of the surrounding area, causing a riot that predated Stonewall by two full years. Hundreds of members of the Los Angeles gay community gathered together to protest the raid and the discriminatory practices of the police. 
they were met by squadrons of heavily armed police officers. This demonstration was the first mass protest against police raids on gay bars in the United States. And although they didn't win, the trial for those arrested the night of the raid was the very first time in U.S. history that a court case stated that gay people were equal and subject to the Constitution just like anybody else. There are very few people left who witnessed these events firsthand, and Alexei Romanoff is one of them. He's continued to fight for civil rights over the past 50 years, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with him now. Alexei, Thank welcome. Thank you very much. So I'd like to start off by talking about Silver Lake in the 1960s. There were several gay bars on Sunset Boulevard, yes. including the Black Cat Tavern and a bar that you were a co-owner of yes. called The New Faces. How important were those spaces for you at the time? Well, considering there was uh, so much prejudice, they were like a second home. They were where we could go uh, and uh, get together, get to know each other, and possibly meet some friends or somebody that we would have an interest in. Uh, none of the bars had open windows into the bars in those days because it had to be private. That was one of the only places we really felt safe, that we could be ourselves and be able to communicate with people of our own, of our community and anybody else who supported us at the time. In these spaces, I've heard that some bars had code words for when undercover police officers were there. When were the moments that you felt you could really let your guard down? We'll, uh, I'll go into a very, very sh uh, a short story. There was a place called the Canyon Club. It was out on Laurel Canyon. It was a, um, it had a swimming pool, it had a restaurant in it, there was a, a re uh, dance floor there, and they had a jukebox because there were no DJs at the time. There was a jukebox on either end of the floor. Now when one of the jukeboxes were playing, you could dance with uh, same-sex people. When it went off and the other one went on, you knew the sheriff's department was in the place and you went and you changed partners. So the women there would start dancing with the men and the men there started dancing with the women. Wow, and how could you tell? Like well, when they came in the door, the, they weren't always undercover and the doorman had a button to change the the jukeboxes, and if he didn't, if they didn't have a card, because it was uh, a club, you actually had to join, like a country club. So that was the, that was up on Laurel Canyon, and it was called the Canyon Club, and it was very interesting, and it was a number of rooms, and it was enjoyable, but we needed to be away from the public's eye, because any time you were in the public's eye, you were in danger. You were not only in danger from the police but possibly from the public themselves. Right. What was it like feeling like it had to be a secret that you were gay in public? Well, I was very open about being gay, and uh, I didn't lie about it. All I did was, unless you asked me, I didn't divulge it. But uh, I was open, and that had something to do with something that happened to me in New York City. There was Mother Brian, 
He was an 86-year-old man when I was 14, and he ended up telling me what it was like to be gay in 1890. Wow. And he said, if you haven't left your community and the world in a whole in a better place than you found it when you're ready to leave this earth like I am, he says, you haven't lived. And it, I got chills that day. And that was the beginning of my working in the gay community and doing things like that. Not that I did it right at that time, but what I did is I made a, a, a pledge to myself that I wouldn't lie about being gay because if you came out and you let people know who you were and that you were a good person, they couldn't possibly hate you. And that's something like what coming out day is now for the gay community. How does it make you feel to see how different things are for queer youth now? Things are so different now, and I, I appreciate it. I am married to David. We were married in 2008, and we also were domestic partners when that happened in California before that. And I never thought in my life that I would ever have the ability to marry, and I did. In your lifetime, you've seen the LGBT community face all kinds of discrimination and tragedy. How did you feel upon hearing news of Orlando over the oh. weekend? We, uh, I've marched in every single pride parade since the first one, all 46 years. Wow. And uh, I helped found the pride parade. But my heart was torn for these poor people there and I saw a report, and it was a young man, a young gay man, uh, and I, it just tore me apart. He was crying because a friend of his he couldn't find. And I knew that kind of pain because walking into the French Market, which was a gay bar, in, a gay restaurant in West Hollywood, I had a friend who was shot with a 22 bullet walking in the door by a passing car years earlier. And I know what that kind of feeling is. Do you have any words of encouragement for those who might be listening? So far, I've been blessed to be healthy and to be here and to be able to repeat what I have seen in my lifetime and the changes. As I said, I never believed that I was going to be able to get married to the man I love, you know? And I didn't believe that other people were going to be able to do that. <clears throat> but I knew it should be. Just like those, the people who work, the braceros and the grape pickers and things like that, should be able to feed their families doing that stoop labor and all of that stuff and not having a place to go to the bathroom or anything that day. And sometimes the children were, were working then too. I knew that was only right, even though I didn't have all of my civil rights. I knew that I had to do something. And that's where I come from. And that's where I was taught to be. You know, I, I, I've, I've lived a charmed life. 
There were a number of times that I could have, it could have been ended at that point. Because, and just for being gay, you know. So it's a good life. And if you come out and you do what's appropriate and you support your brothers and sisters, straight and gay, then the world will be a better place. We don't need fascism. We don't need any of the other isms that are plaguing our world right now. You know, uh, all we need is to care about each other and to live our lives appropriately and decently. And most of those people that were arrested in those days were doing that. Thank you so much. That was MTV podcast producer Mukta Mohan speaking to Alexei Romanov. This is Anna Marie Cox. I'm the senior political correspondent for MTV News, and I'm joined by Dan Savage, host of the Savage Love podcast and a longtime columnist for Seattle's The Stranger. Dan, I was hoping you could start us out by putting the response to Orlando from the LGBTQ community into a bigger historical perspective. It reminds me of when Matthew Shepard was murdered. There was a lot of hand-wringing, appropriately so. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of people looked at that and said, nothing's changed. And things are as bad as they've ever been. And the culture hates us uh, and persecutes us as much as it ever has. And I looked at Matthew Shepard and I saw evidence perversely of a kind of progress. uh, Because if the men who had murdered Matthew Shepard 40 years earlier, even 20 years earlier, had just gone to court and said he hit on us, they wouldn't have been indicted, most likely. And if they had been indicted, they certainly wouldn't have been convicted. And the state of Wyoming, which is not even today a particularly tolerant or welcoming place for queer people, treated the men who murdered Matthew Shepard no differently than they would have treated two men who murdered a nun. Mm-hmm. And so in this, even in this, in the horror of this moment, look at the response. Look at the people pouring into the streets. Look at the response, and I know this is kind of a trite pop culture example, but the response of Stephen Colbert and Samantha B. and uh, and you know, just watched uh, Jimmy Fallon open his show mm-hmm. or watch the opening of his show. Not only where he said, "How do we? How do you talk to your kids about this?" He talks about just having become a parent, and then there's this moment where he kind of looks to one side and looks back at the camera and says, "And what if my kid? What if my kid is gay? What do I tell?" my kid then. And this is a straight male parent on television wondering how best to be the, you know, how to be the best parent he can possibly be to his kid if his kid happens to be queer when he grows up. And contemplating it not in horror of his kid being queer, but in horror of some of the things out there that he would have to explain to a queer kid. And how sad and tragic that is. And it just, and in that moment, you know, I watched that and I was like, that's different. Mm-hmm. 50 people are dead, and really 49 people are dead, and one monster. And the world stopped and is paying attention and is grieving. And the President of the United States 
gave very serious remarks and ordered the flags lowered to half staff at the White House and the Washington Monument, every federal building in the United States, and every military institution. And how many tens of thousands of people, gay men, queer people, had to die, poor people, IV drug users had to die before anybody could muster up the least bit sympathy, empathy, or any action or response during the HIV AIDS epidemic. So maybe it's just because I'm an old fag now and have perspective that some of the young kids who are writing me at Savage Love lack. But even in this moment of terror and horror, there are multiple specks, silver specks. I wouldn't call them silver linings. It's not like this dark cloud is lined with something bright and shiny. But there are specks in this very dark cloud that give me hope that we should look to and point at and say, there's the difference. They were all, you know, there are always going to be people who are hateful and homophobic and homicidal and self-hating and homophobic and homicidal and pickled by religion and destroyed themselves or go out there and destroy others. But look at the response. And it's not just like, oh, look at the people rushing in, not the people doing shitty things. But look at the particular difference in this response where you have queer people being harmed and you have whole societies it feels like a whole society or the majority of the people in that society coming down on the side of, yeah, maybe not. Maybe we shouldn't be murdering queer people like this. Maybe this is wrong. Some Republicans, some conservatives have tried to make it this about Americans being mm -hmm. killed. And this wasn't, it, they were Americans for sure, of course. Um, but they were also a specific community in a particular community that was celebrating a specific thing. Two groups that are despised. I mean, you look at look at the names of the dead, and I've been reading about the dead all day today. Um, immigrants, Latinos, non-native English speakers, um, poor people, again, immigrants, and queer. Like, these are multiple overlapping, loathed and despised groups. And some straight people. To me, this just shows so vividly how pointless this act was, you know, like just it, it was an act of insanity and cruelty um, and terror and pointless in that he didn't accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And you know what? The people uh, who pushed Prop 8 didn't accomplish what they wanted to accomplish mm -hmm. either. Uh, and the men who murdered Matthew Shepard didn't accomplish what it wants to accomplish or what they wished to accomplish, which was to mm -hmm. terrorize gay people everywhere. Um, it, you know, the... Sometimes you, you, you talk to young, sort of politically engaged lefty kids, as I mm -hmm. sometimes do. And there is this tendency to point to evidence of anti-Semitism, racism, transphobia, homophobia, sexism, and despair and say, oh, look, we're, it's as, everything's as bad as it's ever been. And, you know, the measure of a culture or society is not, uh, the sole measure shouldn't be, couldn't be. Is there no hate? Is there no racism? Is there no transphobia is there no sexism and then that's a good place right the measure mm -hmm. i think of a culture society is how does it respond when racism sexism transphobia anti-semitism uh manifests itself and even in this moment and i'm going to cry again i've cried so much talking about this in the last couple of days even in this moment uh look look at what's manifested uh, in the streets of Orlando, uh, in Anderson mm -hmm. Cooper's grilling of Pam Bondi today, we've got some uh, 
cultural accounting <laughs> mm -hmm. um, for bigotries of the past. And mm -hmm. hopefully this is inspiring some accountability for Ted Cruz and Mike Huckabee and Bobby Jindal about the right-wing bigoted Christian terrorists that they've been palling around with and whether that's tenable. And there is this effort to say, these aren't queer people, these are Americans. So like, we don't have to look at the queerness, let's just look at the Americans. And even there, you know, that's a, that's a leap that a lot of conservatives couldn't have made 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, even that attempt at erasure, they wouldn't have made 20 years ago. They just would have denied that we were Americans or really citizens. You were gay people first. Right. Gay people first, gay people only and excluded from political life, family life, excluded from the cultural life of the country beneath contempt or acknowledgement. And so even in their like desperate attempt to, you know, this desire to acknowledge us, and then want to just round us up to some sort of non-queer sex having, uh, non-same-sex kissing, dancing, whatever, sort of generic category so that they can look at the American and not see the queer American. Even in that, even in that reach, even in that stretch, you see strain that conservatives wouldn't have made 10 years ago. They wouldn't have made that reach 10 years ago. They wouldn't have commented. They wouldn't have said one goddamn fucking thing. You just heard MTV senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox in conversation with Dan Savage. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network. The field recordings you heard in this episode were captured outside the Stonewall Tavern in New York City on Monday, June 13, 2016. You can find the entirety of our coverage of the Orlando shootings at orlando.mtv.com. And for information on how you can help those in need, please visit helporlando.mtv.com. That's it from us this week, and we're off next week. We'll see you in July. We're going to leave you with an audio essay from MTV political writer Jane Koston. For MTV News, I'm Holly Anderson. Thank you for listening. Stay as safe as you can, and take care of each other out there. My first Pride Parade was in St. Louis, Missouri. I was 21, still fighting off being gay the same way one attempts to fight off a cold. It wasn't working. Being gay felt fraught to me, like I'd be headed out on a long sea journey never to be seen again. I'd leave my family and my friends and depart to Gay Island, and I'd have to learn how to be gay in just the right way so that I could meet someone, someone who would love me, just the way I was. But at Pride, I saw people like me, and also not like me, and it didn't matter. There were kids in high school marching who were out and proud in a way I'd never had the courage to be. There were elderly same-sex couples holding hands. I'd never really seen that before. I'd never really imagined that future for myself before. Me and my forever person, holding hands in public. That could be me someday, I thought. That could be me. Pride matters to me, and to the LGBT community. From the first pride marches held in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles 46 years ago, to this past Sunday, when the first successful Pride March ever held in Kiev, Ukraine, took place amongst tight security and threats from ultranationalist groups, Pride, this time we set aside, is our time to shine, so to speak. But on Saturday night, a gunman killed 50 of us in a nightclub called Pulse in Orlando, Florida. He targeted the club on Latin night. One victim died shielding his boyfriend from bullets. Another was enjoying a night off work at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park. At this moment, dozens of victims are still fighting for their lives in Orlando area hospitals.
This murderer went after LGBT people and their home away from home, and he did it during Pride Month. Pride is when we get to be ourselves in force. Some of us for the very first time. This murderer wanted to stop us from doing that, from being ourselves, from kissing, from holding hands, from falling in love, from living. But that's just it. He couldn't. He can't. If there's anything Pride tells us again and again, it's that we are stronger than any form of hate. And we always have been. Whether that hate comes from our government, or our families, or our communities, or from a lone asshole in an Orlando nightclub. We bind together, and we fight back. Four years after that first Pride parade in St. Louis, I found my person. In a gay club, actually, a few weeks after Pride. It was at a queer dance party, and I was so nervous beforehand that I drank scotch, and I hate scotch. I stood in the center of the room alone. Maybe I should just go home, I thought. This isn't for me. Then this girl with glasses came up to me from behind and tapped me on the shoulder. Hi, she said. Hi, I said back. We talked. She invited me to go outside to the deck with a view of the city to see what was going on out there. We talked some more. I got her number. We got married nearly two years later. We celebrated our first anniversary back in May. Pride is for all of us. It's for our kids and our LGBT elders and our friends. The ones that, for many of us, lie closer to our hearts than biological family. And no amount of hatred or ignorance or violence can change that. Nothing can. Pride is our well-deserved victory party. Because LGBT people aren't in the midst of winning. We've already won.